Welcome to another episode of Global Conscious Leadership Meets Power. This is a group formed for the lead executive students at Stanford Graduate School of Business. And today we are interviewing Dr. Nate Klemp. Dr. Nate Klemp is the man for this time. With the world full of companies who are turning over every rock to evolve into places where people want to come back and give their all, many companies are benefiting from the delightful, unique presence and guidance of Dr. Nate Klemp. Dr. Klemp sees situations from every angle. His journey has led him to this moment, and he's become the person that both leadership and team members feel comfortable sharing concerns and dreams with who can help them create a more dynamic and well company, a place where people can go and tap into their own personal powerhouse. Dr. Klemp earned his undergrad and master's degree at Stanford University, where he fell in love with jazz and philosophy. He decided to become a philosopher instead of a jazz musician and went on to earn a PhD at Princeton in political philosophy. He wrote his first book, The Morality of Spin, while working as an assistant professor at Pepperdine, where he taught for four years. Then, in 2012, he co-founded a company called Life Cross Training, a mindfulness training company that brings optimal well-being to the workplace. Eight years later, Life Cross Training and Mindful Magazine merged to become Mindful which you may know as the world's leading mindfulness media and training company. During this time, Dr. Klemp and his co-founder also co-authored the New York Times bestseller, Start Here, Master the Lifelong Skill of Well-Being. Nate's articles are featured in Inc. Magazine, Mindful Magazine, Entrepreneur, Thomas Reuters, The Legal Executive Institute, The ABA Journal, and other leading business publications. Most recently, though, Dr. Klemp wrote and published another award-winning book with his wife, Kaylee Klemp, titled The 80-80 Marriage, A New Model for a Happier, Stronger Marriage. It's a book about navigating marriage in the modern age and applying the principles of conscious leadership to marriage. At the same time, concepts in this book are delightfully relevant to leaders in business. And we talked about some of these crossovers in our conversation. We recorded this conversation at the end of 2021. Dr. Klemp is a modern day explorer of the mind, body, and nature. While he gains much of his inspiration from his family, he also finds much refreshment and energy hiking the hills of Boulder, meditating in odd places, and playing a little jazz on the piano. Welcome, Dr. Klemp, and thank you so much for joining us. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Klemp. This is the Global Conscious Leadership Meets Power interview. We're going to talk a little bit about what you see companies implementing, and uh, a little bit about yourself. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me here. Okay, so the first question is, over the past two years, you've had a lot going on, uh, and you've accomplished a huge amount, including publishing a an editor's choice, I believe a New York Times editor's choice 
winner with Kaylee. And so what I'd love to know is what are some of the things that you're most grateful for? Uh, which opportunity have you been most grateful for over the past two years, considering all that you've uh, accomplished? Well, I think it's definitely the book, The 8080 Marriage that you just mentioned. So about three years ago, we pitched this idea to a number of different publishers. And I have in the past been an author focusing on mindfulness, but never really marriage. We just had this idea that we thought was really interesting and really fresh and really new. And one publisher, Penguin Random House, took a risk on us. Even though we weren't experts in the field, they thought we had something interesting. And so the gratitude is for that opportunity. And over the last couple of years, basically I've made it my life's mission, not only to, to write a book that I thought was interesting and that we were really proud of, that I think can help people in any kind of relationship, but also just uh, the daily practice of getting out there, getting the word out about the book, doing podcasts, doing interviews, writing articles, keeping up a weekly newsletter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a kind of discipline to that, um, that that initial opportunity sort of opened up for me and, and I think was the, the logical response to an opportunity like that. What are some of your favorite leadership qualities? Well, I'm glad you mentioned discipline. I think discipline is key for leaders. But in terms of the primary quality I would point to, it's something that I actually first observed in my um, first startup venture, which was called Life Cross Training. I was a co-founder with another entrepreneur who was much more seasoned, about 15 years older, had done a, a number of companies. His name was Eric Langshire. And the quality he had that I learned the most from was this ability to see infinite possibility and communicate that to others. So I remember we were in a meeting once that was totally going south. The person on the other side of the table wanted nothing to do with us. And Eric said, you know, in my world, there are infinite possibilities. And in my world, you know, I don't see constraints. I don't see limits. I, I see possibility, essentially, was the message. And that just really stuck with me as one of the fundamental qualities that leaders have because it's contagious. Everybody wants to be a part of a vision like that. Huh. And how can we tie that back to something that I've noticed about you and that I look for, which is presence? Mm. Well, I think they go together hand in hand in a way because if we are in our habitual state, which psychologists call mind wandering, which is essentially just lost in this kind of transitory, looping, trance-like thought about past and future, not really here in the present moment, we're often blind to the possibilities that do exist. So I love that you brought up presence because there's a way in which the only way to see the possibilities that are available to us in this moment. We know that driving results and getting things done, nobody's going to argue that those are criteria leaders must possess. 
what are some qualities that you think people are going to benefit from valuing more? I would say, and this goes back to the 80-80 marriage, which you might be wondering, why am I bringing up a book on marriage or ideas about marriage in the context of corporate culture? But one of the things we talk about a lot in that book and in relationships is this idea of shifting from a mindset of fairness, where the idea is, I'm just going to do my fair share and I expect you either my partner or my coworker or the person I'm working with to do your fair share, shifting from that mindset to something more like what we call radical generosity, where the idea is that my default mindset is to do more. Or in other words, to offer contributions to the team or to the company as a gift to our collective efforts together rather than as a kind of bargaining chip. And so I would say, that's, I think, one of the most undervalued qualities in corporate culture. And I think the insight that goes missing there is that our mindset is contagious. So if you are a leader who is expecting everything out of your employees without giving anything, that is contagious. Your employees will mirror that back to you at every turn. Whereas if you can shift to this mindset of generosity, that also becomes contagious and it creates this kind of upward spiral effect where your generosity elicits more generosity from your employees and you kind of create a culture of generosity at that point. It's such a treat to have you, Dr. Klump, on because you are so dedicated to this concept of presence and mindfulness and how those things are important in business. What is a risk that leaders take by adopting this commitment to be present, to be generous? I think that the risk of that, well, let's talk about generosity because I think with respect to generosity, the risk is that you give too much and the people on the other side of the table, your employees, your partners, whoever it might be, essentially just take advantage of you. You know, you become a doormat. And that's the risk that I think is so great for most of us that it keeps us from being generous in our relationships, in our marriages, in our companies. And so I think that that's a legitimate risk. And when that happens, it's worth revealing that. So I think communication is in some ways the antidote to that risk. And yet there's also massive reward in creating a culture where there is that spirit of generosity and this idea that, hey, we're a team together. We're not just a bunch of individual all-stars fighting for airtime. So there is a risk, yes, but I think the reward is worth it. And there's a pretty clear antidote, which is just clear communication and revealing what's really happening when there's a miscommunication or, or you do feel like you've become a doormat or taken advantage of. And the reason I tied presence to that is because I feel like presence also you risk uh, maybe not always being able to put yourself in the perfect light because I'll give an example. I was just in a meeting and uh, I was needing to defend some numbers and my team 
and somebody is being critical and and if i had only focused on defending us and jamming back you know rebuttaling i would have lost an opportunity to recognize something that that person had they actually had a good point and something important to the business and i think i probably actually wasn't 100% present but i was enough present to to notice that like okay rather than defending myself let's just be aware of what is this person sharing and what can i learn from it and uh and even if you think about that that is almost a, a form of generosity and like you're giving somebody the floor like you said we're not just fighting for airtime we're we're being generous with listening to people maybe a little more than we want to so there's so many ways that we can be generous in the workplace yeah and i do agree that there is a potential risk of presence so i remember i came home from my first long meditation retreat this is i don't know 10 years ago or something and i was so focused on the present moment that i completely forgot my first morning meeting i was supposed to meet breakfast with this gentleman across town and he's sitting there wondering where i am i don't think i had missed a meeting in 5 years but in some ways i needed a little bit more of that mental chatter that's scanning the future for hey you've got this meeting you need to get ready for it blah 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 i think though that's rare i think that our minds are conditioned and trained for the opposite of presence so i think the risk is fairly minimal for most people unless you're out meditating for 4 hours a day or 8 hours a day or something like that which i think most of the people listening to this are not going to be doing well we are going into the great resignation so more people might be taking these uh cool <laughs> long retreats and who knows there might Maybe. be some missed meetings <laughs> so one thing i loved that you shared when we were prepping for this conversation is about how tough conversations are an opportunity to build trust and my question for you was going to be you know how do you maintain trust while still holding people accountable and having difficult conversations and letting people down so but you pointed out that actually difficult conversations can actually be a blessing can you talk about that yeah well first of all one of the things i like to say about trust is that you can think about it almost like a bank account so the way that trust works which i think is really fascinating is that when you're building trust you're thinking in terms of these micro investments you know every time you appreciate your coworker that's a little deposit into the bank account of trust every time you have a conflict and you navigate it skillfully you communicate what's really going on and you come out the other side closer that's another micro deposit into the account of trust now the paradoxical thing about trust is that it takes a long time to build through all these little micro deposits but it takes seconds to destroy right so so the withdrawal side of that bank account of trust can happen very quickly one blatant lie right one manipulative action and it's just gone so i think that it's just worth noting that and noting that 
you know, the, the way to build up trust is to think on both sides of that. One, you want to make sure you're living in integrity with yourself and your team and avoiding those kinds of massive errors that really can diminish the account of trust. But then two, using all of these sort of micro moment opportunities throughout the day as opportunities to build trust. And as you said, I really think of conflict as being one of the primary ways we can build trust. Because if we're able to reveal our full experience, you know, if I'm able to say to you, hey, what you said yesterday in that meeting, I noticed when you said it, I just felt this wave of sadness or anger or fear, whatever it was. And I just, I want to reveal that to you as a way to make sure that we're in integrity with each other. That's a way that we can actually come out closer because you're probably also having an emotional experience. If we both reveal that, all of a sudden we've grown closer, we've built trust and, and it's actually a net benefit, even though it started off as something that was seemingly bad for us and our team. So that's a unique company where people feel comfortable sharing those types of vulnerable emotions with each other. Do you see that that culture is becoming more prevalent in corporate America? And what needs to happen for that to be the case? I think it is because something I've experienced myself in corporate teams is that you often, you almost inevitably reveal these moments of hurt feelings or misunderstanding. The question is, do you reveal them quickly and skillfully, or do you reveal them over a long period of time through some sort of explosive action that diminishes the entire culture of the company? I think it's almost inevitable that one of those two things is going to happen. So, so like the question isn't, are you going to reveal? You will reveal what's really happening. But the question I think that's really interesting is, can you do that quickly when it's just a small rupture in connection and, and it actually doesn't take that much time or effort to clean up or do you do it in a way that that's really messy? And so I think that there are a lot of teams that are realizing this and, and the power of saving that energy drain. Because you know, if our goal is to be productive as a team, and yet we have all of these withheld issues and resentments that nobody's expressing, that is like a, a huge break on the system. Right? It's just this massive drain of energy that's taking away from our ability to move forward together. And so I do think that that's changing a lot. I mean, just over the last five to 10 years, I've noticed pretty huge change in, in just a lot of culture shifting to this model of, of being able to communicate about what's really going on. The meeting after the meeting or the water cooler conversations, that's what traditionally corporate has labeled that less skilled, uh, airing of our emotional reactions to what people are saying in, in meetings and within the business. Yeah. And what we see right now is that people are leaving their companies. And so companies are changing. Like the culture is naturally going to change as a lot of people are leaving. And companies are trying to 
rebuild and maintain control. So what advice uh, have your clients and, and the, the companies that you work with been tapping into from the 8080 marriage book and the principles around 8080 to reshape their culture or expand upon the culture that's great already? I think you bring up a really important point about the great resignation. And from my perspective, what's been happening is that for a lot of us, we had a radical shift in our daily routines and our daily habits from what we were doing before, which might've involved a lot of travel, a lot of commute time, a lot of time in the office to something very different where we had a lot more control and autonomy more time to do things like self-care, workouts, meditation, mindfulness, et cetera. And so the big contradiction that I see going on is for a lot of people, that time where they were able to invest more in themselves gave them a different perspective on what work could be or, or what their life could look like, how much time they could spend cultivating something like wellness or mindfulness, or some other skill like that, fitness even. And so what I think is going on right now is that you now have a lot of employers saying, hey, let's go back to where we were before. I know it involves you traveling a lot. I know it involves making all sorts of sacrifices, but let's go back to the way things were before. And then you have employees saying, I don't want to go back to the way things were before. That wasn't good for me. That was actually harming me. And so I think the solution to that dynamic is to find some place in the middle. So for employers and companies thinking about how can we create a culture that is actually radically supportive to well-being while also being a really productive workplace. So I think there's really like a question of how do we meet in the middle? Where is that middle ground? And I think that's something we're all going to navigate over the next few years as we figure out what does it mean to work? in the post-COVID era. What do you think needs to happen in order for employees to trust companies? Uh, I use the example of wellness programs. So I had this you know, idea that we should be introducing meditation and breathing and heat therapy into corporates because this is helping people to feel more alert and more stimulated and sharper and they're going to do better work and they're going to feel more emotionally healthy well then i received an email that was from our wellness program at work and it actually talked about one of those things and i realized like okay well this program actually already exists but for some reason i don't trust or care about it enough to actually participate. And so what seems to exist, if I think about, if I were to start a new company, I'd like to hear what you think. Um, first of all, how can people who are starting, maybe they have less history behind them and they're just starting something new, how can they set the framework for a company like what we're talking about? And how? What are the challenges that the established corporations need to overcome in order to build this type of wellness culture that's actually having a 
an impact on employees and that's engaging for the employees? I know that's a big two-pronged question. I think there's a really important distinction here between wellness as window dressing and wellness as cultural change. And when I first started our company, Life Cross Training, which was a mindfulness training program for law firms and consulting firms, I remember we had a client that was a big law firm and they were the epitome of wellness as window dressing in the sense that they basically said, we crush our new associates who come in here. They work 90 hour weeks. They work on Friday nights, Saturday nights. So we need to give them something to justify these crazy hours and the crazy life that they live. So we're going to give them this mindfulness program. So it was like a very conscious and deliberate attempt to say, we're going to give you this one thing to offset the horrendous working conditions that we've set up for you. And it didn't work well for all sorts of reasons. But I think the main reason is that it was clearly just window dressing and nothing more. The companies that we've worked with that really do this well, on the other hand, they view this as fundamental cultural change. So it's not just like, hey, you have mindfulness coaching or you have meditation classes or you have yoga classes or things like that. It's everywhere you turn in the company, you see artifacts and reminders of the fact that well-being matters. So for example, at the beginning of meetings, there might be a moment of presence, right? That's just built in a way to get everybody focused. Um, you know, this might show up in all hands meetings. It might show up in company newsletters, it shows up on the portal, right? There's a way in which if it's omnipresent, all of a sudden it gets baked into the culture itself. And I think that's the way you can create real change. So the second part of the question, maybe it was the first, was about what do you do if you're first starting a business? And I think there you're not so much dealing with these big bureaucratic cultural problems. You're dealing with, hey, we have no budget, we're a startup, how do we do this? There, I think it's almost easier in the sense that if you as the founder or your team of founders can buy into this, and again, bring it into the way you run your meetings, the way you have conversations, all of a sudden it can just become a part of the culture. And it's actually easier because you're talking about a culture of five or 10 or 20 versus 20,000. Yeah, that would be, I love the concept of, well, I, it's not good, but window dressing. I'm so glad that you notice it and that you have experience with that and that you can then help companies avoid that. Because I think there are some companies who are doing that without realizing it. I have to believe that there are a lot of teams that are putting together these wellness programs and they have the best intentions, but they, they're still landing in the window dressings category. Yep. It goes back to what I said earlier about mindset. Mindset is contagious, but also just the way you show up as a leader or the leadership team shows up, that's contagious too. So if you're showing up from a place of, hey, we really care about your well-being and I as the leader care about my well-being, I have my own practice or my own you know, set of protocols that I use, that is contagious. Likewise, if you live in a kind of cutthroat mentality of, hey, I'm just going to grind it out and work myself to death, that's contagious too. And after the great resignation, I don't think too many people want to be around that kind of energy. 
So you're going to have a hard time keeping people in your company. I interviewed someone recently and they thought, you know, the concept of human focused companies is silly because all companies should be focused on humans. And so one could say that bringing your whole self to work is also a silly concept, um, but certainly a topic that the world is, is discussing. So what are your thoughts about this concept uh, and also what are the benefits and the challenges based on how you understand it? Yeah, this is something I've thought about a lot. And especially as a, a company that's in the business of wellness and well-being and mindfulness, we've in, internally had to figure this out for ourselves. And I think there's a kind of middle way here because I don't think it works well if we completely bracket ourselves from our work. And we show up to the office and there's no vulnerability. There's no experience of emotion. You know, there's, there's no sort of like authentic communication happening. I, I think that's not a good thing for all sorts of reasons. But I've also seen the underside of bringing too much of yourself to work. So I've been in meetings where people go so far with this, they're revealing things that are so vulnerable that it actually starts to scare some of the people on the team. It starts to have this kind of strange effect on culture where people shut down. And so I, I do think there's actually a risk of bringing too much of yourself to work and that it's worth thinking about what are the boundaries I have? You know, as an author, I think a lot about this with things like social media. How much of myself and my life am I willing to share? There are obvious things that I don't want to share. There are things that I do want to share. So the, the interesting question is like, where's that line? And I think it's similar at work where, you know, there are clearly things that are inappropriate to share in the workplace. And so where I would draw that line is I would say your full self and emotional experience as it relates to your coworkers and work itself, I think is totally legitimate and appropriate. I think where it starts to get dangerous is when the sharing and the vulnerability starts to slip into personal issues or neuroses or things like that, that are just kind of outside the scope of the workplace. Hmm. Well, I would love to hear about the uh, companies that you're working with who are doing a great job with incorporating wellness at every turn of the way uh, offline. But uh, thank you so much, Dr. Clem, for joining us. And it's been a privilege speaking with you about these topics. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been really fun.